This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 82. And the quote of the day is from Henry Ford, who said, It has been my observation that most people get ahead during the time that others waste time. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I want to say thank you to Boso Bamboo Drumsticks for being the sponsor of the show. And as I said, it costs money to keep the lights on here at Drummer's Resource to, to produce this podcast every week and all the other stuff that I do. And Boso has been great enough to sponsor the podcast and also offer 15% off any order at bosodrumsticks.com. So use the promo code PODCAST. That'll save you 15% off of Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. I'm telling you, you got to check these things out. They're amazing, and there's a lot of great stuff coming in 2015 from Boso Drumsticks. So check them out, bosodrumsticks.com. Get 15% off with the, with the promo code PODCAST. The interview that I have today is great. I have Robin DiMaggio. And Robin is is I mean he's he's a renaissance man. He's played with everybody from Paul Simon to Dr. Dre, and he was the music director on Arsenio Hall, and has been uh, music director for other shows. And and just he works for the UN. I mean he has all kinds of amazing stuff going on. And this interview is great because we really talk about the the act of giving uh, in order to receive things. So the more you give, the more you get, kind of thing. And and Robin is just very insightful about hustling and about getting gigs and about you know shifting your mindset to to really attract the things that you want out of life, which I love that type of stuff here at Drummers Resource. So that's why I was really excited, really really excited to have him on the show. All right, that's about enough talking for me. Let's get into this interview with Mr. Robin DiMaggio. Robin, what's going on, man? Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Let's have some fun today. Let's do it. I apologize for uh, for getting you up so early because I know you're. It's it's noon here. It's nine there. So it's okay. Yeah, I, uh, I have to learn to get up. <laughs> there, I was going to ask: Are you a are you an early riser? Or are you like every other musician and sleep in? Like an I, riser it depends on the day of the work I have to do. I get up early or I get up late. Right. All right. I got you. So I always like to get the backstory on the guests and, you know, there's a ton of information out there online where people can, can read about you and find, find out about you. So I don't want to go too in depth with it, but just give us a little backstory. Let the listeners know, uh, who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a, uh, plumber at heart and, uh, <laughs> just kidding. So I would uh, say that I've started playing drums at two and a half years old. And uh, my first professional gig, I was five at the uh, Carnegie Hall with my dad, who was a conductor of the Paris Symphony. And, um, you know, I started uh, my first gig at 16 with Tracy Chapman and moved on and haven't stopped. Um, three TV shows in, multiple award shows, uh, tours of the yin yang, tons of records, and uh, just having a blast. I like it. So you were born, um, where, where were you born, Sweden? No, my mother's French. I was born in Paris. Okay. My father from a little town called Gaeta, Okay. Italy. Okay. So I'm half French, sorry. And I came to the States when I was 12. Ah, I got you. So, tu parla italiano? Si, parla italiano. Bravo. So. italiano, I Okay. I have both languages. Awesome. So now that I know that that helps out with uh, with the stuff that you do with the UN, and I, I definitely want to get into all of that and and talk about the charitable stuff that you do and just a ton of a ton of other things because you're I think you're a fascinating human being, man. Aside from from drumming, but what you've what you've managed to do with your career. Um, so starting out at that age, starting playing drums at two and a half, and landing a gig with with Tracy Chapman at 16. Can you kind of walk us down that line a little bit and and you know explain how something like that happens because I know the listeners out there always want to try to to bridge that gap. Well, it was a different era, 1988ish was a different era than 2015. So, when you think about it, um, you know, the dream is free, the hustle is not. 
and you can be put in situations um, of luck or of opportunity every single day, but it's about your business sense or about your hustle. And I don't want to say that in a negative way, but you know, you gotta unfortunately be an opportunist and look at things where no one else is looking. And that takes me all the way to today. But what I want to say is, let's just say, you know, before that, my dad had put me on a couple gigs with Mel Torme and Sammy Davis Jr., Ray Charles, back in like 85, 86, when I was barely 15. Um, I would, you know, play with those guys with the orchestra backing them up. And um, it was it was lessons. It was, there were huge life lessons because I saw one how as a child, which I wasn't an adult yet or a teenager, uh, I was being treated uh, monetarily and, uh, you know, as a, the perfectionism that I had to create on stage, I had to learn really quick. Mm-hmm. So that was the first part. Second part is I went to one audition in my life and that was a Tracy Chapman thing. And I'd said, I will never do that again. And I never did. Um, what I ended up doing was I went and a friend of mine said, there's an audition and you're not scheduled on it, but go as a last drummer. So it starts at 12. It'll be done by 7 p.m. Get there at six, kind of hide listen to what's going on, and then just sneak in, sneak your way in. I said, okay. So I did. And, um, you know, I listened to what all the other drummers were doing, and for her style of music, um, they all played pretty much extremely busy. There was too many fills, too much show off. It wasn't about the music. It wasn't about the songwriter. It was not about the story that you're saying. It was more of like, well, let me just pop some fancy fills here or some 30 second notes here or whatever to to make it sound really, you know, so that they can hear me. I didn't do that. I had listened to the song already now, which was kind of unfair, but maybe at least 10 times. And when I walked in, I knew the song. And what I did is I accompanied her as a vocalist instead of a drummer. So I came in to enhance the story she had to say instead of, trying to play drums and impress her. Right, right. And immediately she turned around and she asked how old I was. I lied once and I said I was 18. And she goes, good, you're going on tour with me. And that was it. <laughs> so what happens when she found out you were 16? It actually didn't happen till about two months after when the label, uh, which was, I think, Electro Records back then, um, the, the president of the company, Joe Wizard, said, look, uh, We've been doing your paperwork and we got a copy of your passport. You're not 18 yet. And you've kind of snuck through this whole passage without us knowing we got to talk to your parents. Is it? Of course. So when I talked to my parents, my parents were all for it and they said, let's do it. You know, let's continue this. Hmm. <laughs> I love the fact that you're just like, oh, yeah, I'll just, it may come out in the wash. It, it may not. We'll see what happens. But like you said, sometimes you got to be an opportunist and, and take advantage of the situation that's in front of you and not in a, not in like a, in a sleazy way, but you know, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta do what's right to, uh, to, to farther your career and do the things that to set yourself apart from everybody else, you know? Absolutely. And the other thing is you have to understand, I don't, um, you know, today at my age, I wouldn't do that. Like, you know, they, they ask me nowadays, like, you know, do you know what happy hour is? And I'm like, yeah, at my age, happy hour is taking a nap. Right. <laughs> you know? So, so um, I, um, I don't, you know, now I'm kind of, I don't want to say established because there's a lot of people that don't know me, but I, um, you know, I'll tell you a very funny story. Um, I just got this, uh, this, this reminder of, of how it worked. I, I grew up with Joe Picard, who was my drum teacher, and I grew up with Steve and Mike and Jeff and David Page and all those guys. And Mike really took me under his wing. So did Steve Picard and so did Page. And Jeff, I would go to his house to, you know, for birthday parties, for Joe's birthday party, whatever. And he would invite me to sessions and just, I would watch him just 
take over a session. And it was something that I'd never seen before done. And I went to his house one day and I think it was 1990 or 89 or something. And he had just opened an envelope up in his office and he said, Oh, look at this. And he kind of threw it on the, on the table. I said, and at my age, I was completely in awe because he was on the cover of Modern Drummer. And when I saw that, I said, in my head, now at that age, I said, wow, you've made it. You, you're on the cover of Modern Drummer. This is the greatest achievement humanly possible. And he looked at me and hysterically laughed. And I said, why are you laughing? <laughs> he said, because, Robert, this magazine cover will only get me happiness at an amp show. And it doesn't do anything for my career. Right. I said, why? I mean, you're, it's the cover of Modern Drummer. And he said, no. And he said, this does nothing for me. What does it for me is knowing back then the artist relations, the singers, the, the talent, the producers, the record executives. These are the guys that will never pick up a Modern Drummer and go, oh, so-and-so's on Modern Drummer cover. I want to hire him for a gig. Right, right. <laughs> and that was brilliant. And that changed my mentality where I just said, I don't need that. You're right. I need to make things happen on different levels mm -hmm. because that's a stroke of ego. And we can't live as human beings and as musicians with the stroke of ego. We have to live by what the music is all about. Which sure. Come to an experience I had uh, when I toured with Steve Gadd and did Paul Simon's record with Steve, Double Drumming. And Steve is another one who taught me a humongous lesson. And he was always about, because, you know, Double Drumming with Steve Gadd is a little uh, intimidating. Sure, and it's Steve Gadd. The greatest, right? <laughs> and the most humble human being I've ever met in my life. And the guy, all he wanted to do was just all the time, was whatever you play, it's got to be about the music. Right. And right. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, what, what are you talking about? It's got to be about the music. Like, yeah, of course, but, you know, we're double drumming. We have a lot of power. He goes, yeah, and you're going to overpower Paul Simon on stage? And I was just always looking at him saying, why do you always play the things that nobody expects? However, you don't play anything that you should be playing. And I was always just mind bothered being five feet away from him to my right. right. I would look over and what he played was literally magical. And he said, because I don't have to search for anything to do behind the drums. I just have to feel what's coming next. And that's why he plays with everyone because everybody wants that. They want that, you know, that lightning in the bottle and that, that, that musicality and that, that level of genius, you know, it's not what he played. It's what he didn't play. Exactly. Exactly. I told, and, and, you know, going back to, uh, you had mentioned about being around Jeff Picard all the time, you know, when he said he didn't, even, he never remembers playing a drum solo and he didn't like playing drum solos because it's so self-serving and doesn't do anything for the music. Well, yeah. And the drum solo with Jeff Picard is that he could your drum solo that would annihilate all of us. Right. But he knew that it was again to impress not the community he wanted to impress. And he wanted to always make sure that his music was heard on a balanced level, which is the average Joe going out back then buying records or CDs and listening to play, you know, listening to Jeff play on some of the big records, Steely Dan and, you know, all these all these giant records that he did. That's where he wanted to be heard. So right. the majority of people listen, not the 1% drumming community that would say, oh, look at that fill he did. Or look at this. Because he always said, nobody knows out there where a slam paradiddle is. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't. You go to, you know, he goes, you go to a store and you walk in the middle of an aisle of a frozen food section. And he, he would tell me, he goes, do you think if I tell them a pattern of rhythms, they'll understand what I'm talking about, unless you're a musician. Right. I said, no. He goes, so when I walk into a store and there's 300 people there, how many musicians are there? 
compared to people who work at the bank and computer companies right. or whatever. And I remember those words really well because it made sense. So for me, these were all the little things in life that kind of like groomed me to where I had to pay attention. That makes sense. Now you had mentioned the that you changed your entire mindset and, and because I think you kind of walk down these two roads that you can either go toward my goal is to be on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine and impress all the drummer people and play all these crazy fills and all that stuff, or my goal is to play on records and play in front of people and play musically. And you said that you had a shift in mindset and also changed your hustle, so to speak. So what what was that change in mindset and how would you how do you differentiate that hustle between you know, trying to get on records versus trying to get on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine? Um, because, again, um, you know, I have a family, I have children, and I knew that I didn't want to live in a small apartment, you know, in a wreck neighborhood hustling to try to make ends meet. Right. And that was playing music for me. Playing music was live comfortable. And to be able to, um, you know, pay my bills. I didn't need to make excess money. I just needed to make sure I could pay my bills and provide for my family. Right. And that not worry about next month. And also, I could be creative when I wanted to, not because I had to. Right. Um, so when you are consistent in life, you can actually sit back some days and say, I'm not going to do anything today except write a piece of music. I'm going to score this piece of film or I'm going to write a new theme for the UN or I'm going to write some cues for a TV show I'm on right now or whatever. For me, it was all about, you know, just making sure that I had the freedom. And, and it wasn't always like that, but I mean, there's, there's been hard times, but in the general part of my life, it was always about being comfortable to be able to always be creative with music. Sure. You know, and once in a while, I think that that gets a bad rap that people, you know, people say, well, you should be playing for the love of music. And, and my answer to that is always, well, yeah, I love playing music and, but I want to get paid to do it. And I want to do this as a career. So, you know, I, some, and I think that I'm sure that you hear people talk about it too, that it's like, Oh, well that guy's just worried about the money. And it's like, well, I have to be worried about the money if I have, you know, family and, and kids to take care of. And I still want to play music. So sure. I gotta, I gotta chase the money on some level, you know? Well, let me ask you this. What makes us different putting all ego aside than branch manager at a bank going and, you know, making money at the bank because he has to come home to a wife and, you know, children or vice versa. She has to come home to a husband and kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is she going there to, you know, enhance the banking system? Hopefully, is she there to make money? Yeah, we all have to make money. This right. is a world where money dominates. Right. And if you don't make money, then it puts so much tear and wear on your brain and it, you know, it threatens your heart that sometimes you lose momentum to instead of performing or creating good music, you're too worried about bills that are too much late. Sure, sure. And trust me, I've been there. <laughs> right, <I've>, me too. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had my share. Um, but I like to know that what I do, I'm comfortable doing it. So if somebody, let me give you an idea. If somebody calls me to do a session nowadays, because I don't really do them that much anymore, but if somebody calls me to do a session, I don't like the music, um, I won't do it. If I don't believe that I can make the song, the story better, then I, I won't play on it. Right. Because I don't need to. But if I believe that somebody has no money and they want to pay me, couple hundred bucks because they're independent but i believe so much in what they're doing it's on me i will go gladly and play on their stuff for free right because you gotta give back sure and if you're there after every little diamond nickel then again it's it's a you know two-edged sword it's you have to you have to give good back in order to receive good 
mm-hmm. know, it's a kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Got to give to get. That's one of my one of my main principles in life, man. That you know, that there's always somebody who has less than you, or or somebody that you can help, no matter what it is. And and giving back to me is the key to to getting everything that you want out of life. And Absolutely. you know, you know, speaking to the money thing is that that money buys freedom. So you you know you can do it ethically and morally, and and be financially you know secure. And it it allows you the freedom or it buys you the freedom to not have to go do a gig that you don't want to. Because if you were two months late on your bills, you'd be going to do that session whether you wanted to or not. Exactly. You know, I totally agree with that. Now, speaking yeah. of, of giving back, were you going to say something? No, please. Go ahead. Oh. Well, I was just going to uh, transition into you would mention giving back. And, and um, I think that's a perfect time to tie into the all of the charitable efforts that you do. Um, so let's talk about the, the charity work that you do, because I know that you're really passionate about this and you're doing great things with it. So tell us about that. Well, I'm part of, you know, local organizations and global organizations. So the local stuff, like I help, um, uh, fallen heroes, which is an organization in California to help, uh, firefighters and police officers that have died on the line of duty. And I put together every year, um, you know, uh, an event so they can um, they can raise money to help the families because you'd be surprised how the government doesn't really help, um, you know, government officials as, as like firefighters and officers. So I really believe in that. Um, but my main thing is. I um, I'm part of Covenant House too. I help homeless, you know, kids that are out there, um, and put together an event every year for that. Um, and it's a big, or, you know, homeless shelter organization. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, um, mm-hmm. Covenant House. Yeah. Uh, but my biggest thing is is uh, the UN. And in 2009, um, I met Kofi Annan, and I kind of. He wanted me to basically, after he had seen me do a concert, he wanted me to help him organize what they call back then the MDGs, Millennium Development Goals, which is to eradicate disease, give women uh, power to vote worldwide in, you know, sub-countries, and diseases like malaria all over the world. That is, you know, it's here. You don't, in America, we don't have that, but in over 80 countries we do. Right. And it's a problem, um, you know, Ebola, all that stuff. So for me, um, it was an important cause. However, when I talked to him, I said, look, I don't like the way you operate your concerts and events. And he looked at me like shocking eyes. And he said, and back then he was a secretary general of the UN. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the way you're operating things is you're basically using a lot of the donation money to invite your goodwill ambassadors, uh, you know, from Michael Douglas, Jolie, to, you know, Kirk Douglas, to Michael Douglas, to, I mean, Belay, to, uh, it's just hundreds. Right. And so when you fly them in on a private jet, you put them up, you use security, you put them up at a five-star, you pay for the food, you've already spent, I'm going to say an average of three million bucks easy. Right. for the whole thing. For the whole thing. So that three million bucks doesn't go to help kids in need water, fresh water wells. And he goes, "Well, how else do you want us to do it?" And I go, "It's really simple." And this is where I, I blew everybody's mind out there. I said, "Why don't you get since there's 193 countries and two hosting countries? Why don't you get?" a hosting country for that event. And he kind of looked at me and it clicked because he was a real fast, smart man. And I said, the hosting country would be a small country like Madagascar or Mauritius, or it can even be Jakarta or any small countries for them, $3 million to have their flag up front and to have the importance of the UN to have a flag up front that says that they're the host country of that multi-net, you know, nation event is worth three million bucks. Sure. And that way it doesn't come out of UNICEF, UNESCO, or the UN. 
and that money comes from a country that's donating the money, they have their flag up front. So there's so many countries, again, 193 countries that are part of the UN. That's not what's part of the world. And I know you or I can't name the 193 countries. Absolutely not. Okay, so I know I can name maybe 55, 60. I tested myself. After that, I'm lost because they're countries that just, they're too small of a country, but they're still part of the UN. So right. if you have a country like that host, you kind of resolve all your problems and it's, it's a done deal. And when I put that first event together, um, the biggest fight I had was, you know, I, I don't remember if it was a president or prime minister that represented that country, but they came and they wanted me to play the Heim or their anthem of their country. And you also have to be knowledgeable with a lot of world music, not sure. just a samba or, you know, a rock beat or, or jazz beat. Or you got to know, you know, when you're dealing with Africa, there's probably 300 different kinds of ways just in South Africa region to play a certain song. Right. So <laughs> it's not it's not easy stuff to learn. When people say I play African music, let me tell you, from Ivory Coast Senegal to Kenya, Tanzania are completely two different worlds of playing mm -hmm. to South Africa. Again, completely worlds of playing. So it is, it's, it's a different mentality, different energy. And you got to know that. And the same thing is, you know, if you have to play Celt music, you know, Celtic music from Ireland, you have to be in that mentality. Mm -hmm. So the knowledge of that really has to be there. And for me, you know, I really believe that Paul Simon is the one who kind of opened up this huge uh, plethora of, of, of music styles because every night we went from Bojangles to, you know, uh, second line Louisiana, New Orleans kind of music to African music from three, four different spots to Brazilian music to Americana music, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so he, he wasn't afraid and you had to play perfect. So that was important. And it kind of opened my mind that it was, again, a lesson that I needed to be ready for something like the UN musically. And every year I do three main events and they're always very successful because to me, it's very secondhand. It's, I can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, what's hard about it, it's not playing the music. It's the political business behind the music right. so all the red tape beyond belief yeah you know? i'm sure it's the egos it's the egos of the un where you know they come in and one guy wants you to play this and you know he, the other guy with his security team wants you to play that and you have to make a choice and you have to kind of be ballsy enough to say no that's not gonna happen right, right. if i for you i have to do it for a hundred different guys that are club on stage mm -hmm. and i go nobody's in one day rehearsal because we rehearse the same day we're not learning a hundred pieces of music right. because we already have 40 pieces. <laughs> right, right. You know, now how many people are at these events? Uh, there's usually about a hundred heads of States. Um, and probably between 2,500 and 3,000. Okay. It's extreme dignitary. It's, it's, it's as classy as it gets. Sure. Now, how do you land a gig like that? I created it. Oh, really? It didn't exist. Huh. Yeah, there was guys who put events together for the UN, but, you know, when I went in and, and blew the, the SG, the, the Secretary General's, you know, mind with my idea how to put money towards this, uh, he asked me, he said, okay, I want you to do it. What do you want? And I said, well, I want a position of the official musical director, and I want, you know, this and this and that. And he said, you got it. Hmm. So how, so I guess you had some sort of connections to get to him, you know, it was pure luck. It was at a concert backstage. He was there. He went to the artist and said, you know, I'd like for you to perform at this event I'm putting together. And the artist said, I can't, but you should talk to my musical director. This is what he loves to do. Maybe there's something for you to do with him. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. 
it's amazing how things like that work out, you know, that that one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And if you have the open mind and, you know, the, the creativity and the hustle to do it, you can, you know, like you did, create a position in, in the UN to put on these events. Yeah, but on the spot, you can't, you know, if you see the opportunity, you got to jump on it. Because sure. if I don't, somebody else will. Somebody else will. Exactly. I am not the most talented drummer in the world. I'm not the most intelligent person in the world. But I have knowledge enough on a lot of situations to know that I could handle a conversation with them. Sure. So if you take another guy, you have to be careful because, you know, another musician could come in and he could be all ego. Well, I'm so-and-so and I'm here. And you need me. I don't need you. Well, it doesn't work that way. Right. Right. We need each other. <laughs> you know, well, making it mutually no, beneficial. I don't even look at it that way. I mean, that's that's a good way to put it. But for me, I don't look at it like we need each other. I'm looking at how can I help? Because my heart truly wants to help you. Right. And I want to try to make things right. Mm-hmm. And how do I make them right? So that to me is the most important thing. Right. Right. No, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, I wanted to ask, you mentioned being the, the musical director and you were the musical musical director for the Arsenio, Arsenio Hall show. Excuse me. Uh, can you yeah. talk about that a little bit about how, how that came about? Yeah. Um, well, I've known Arsenio for 25 years and um, I basically decided to... Um, I was doing another TV show. It was Lopez Tonight with Doris Lopez. Mm-hmm. And I had Lenny Castro on my right. It was it was fun band. Um, but uh, when I had that um, when I had that show, uh, who back then a guy named Michael Bearden was the musical director who highly respect. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. did. This is it, Michael Jackson and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, what I ended up doing was uh, Arsenio came to the show and we used to do a show back in the day. I used to have a band when I was 15, 16 called Sex with Chocolate. And two of the members in my band were those guys. And when my band played um, in the clubs back then, Arsenio, Eddie Murphy, and Mike Tyson used to come and listen to us all the time. Right. And that's where I think they got the name for the movie for the band. Oh, so you were in the band before that? It was my band. Before yeah. before our, our uh, Coming to America came out. So that was my band. <laughs> and, um, and you know, it's okay. I was underage and, and right. they use it. Right? Right. Everything comes full circle. So he comes on the last night of uh, Lopez when we're, we're being canceled. And because TV is always about being canceled. It's not about how long you last. It's about right. when are we canceled? Right. I'm used to it. I love it. It's, again, just every day you show up, it's your last day kind of vibe. Um, so you give your, your all every time. Mm-hmm. I showed up and Arsenio's there and he comes up to me and he says, hey, I'm putting the show back together. It'll take a couple of years. I would love it if you, you know, thought about being my MD. I've known you for so long. Right. Let's, just, let's talk about it when it comes to fruition. He got a deal with CBS. He's coming back. He contacted me and he said, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah. He goes, I need you to put these two guys together from the old band. So I grabbed the two guys that I still play with, uh, Rob Bacon and Alex Al. And then I hired um, a guy named Sean Holt and uh, hired a, a keyboard player named Victoria Theodore. And we put that band together. And it was the Posse 2.0, which was Posse 2. Right. You know, the original Posse was on the University of show. And we killed it every night. We had a blast. Man, I heard so many people talking about your band from day one, from from when Arsenio Hall show came back on, talking about the band. Like I, I mean, even the guitar player that I play with now, he's all he's he would always talk about you guys. But I've heard so many different people talking about how kick ass the band was. I agree, but it was just amazing how many other people were talking about it. So kudos yeah, to you I, for that, man. Well, we we, you know, I kept them all. On their toes, I we played at least thirty pieces of music a day. Um, we wrote everything every night. It was always different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the cues became just massive fat grooves, and um, that's what we wanted. But you know, you got to understand that the bass player and the guitar player 
have been with me for 20 plus years. Right. So we knew each other inside out. So when I gave them a look, they just knew where to follow. Mm-hmm. And then keyboard player or Sean jumped in whenever they wanted to. Right, right, right. So do you ever MD from not behind the drum seat or behind the drums or no? Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've been known to hire some of my favorite drummers to come in and play. Mm-hmm. And I would be um, because I sometimes, if I have the liberty to do that, I love watching my idols that are still alive, obviously, um, sit behind a kid and watch them play. Sure. I spun. So, you know, I'll tell them this is what it is. And I'm always the kindest guy to the drummers, too. Like everybody else, you know, they're on a strict line, but with right. the drums, <laughs> you got all, you got all the, you got all the mojo you want, whatever you right. want, you got, you know, just do your thing. So right. give them a lot of leeway because I just, you know, they're there doing the thing. Sure. And every one of them has been so kind. It's just like producing. Sometimes I'll produce an artist and I'll play on half the record and the other half I'll hire a drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes I'll play on the whole thing. Or sometimes I will, you know, not play a piece of music. And I'll just have a drummer come in and be like, you do that so I can concentrate on the production. And, you know, this vocal's got not the greatest vocalist in the world, so i got to really concentrate on vocals. And I'm, I'm going to let you do your thing. Sure. You know? Sure. And it makes other drummers work. And, you know, they're happy to come in and grab their money. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it, again, it's never about ego for me. It's about doing it because that's what's right for the music. Right. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> now, uh, who who are some of your idols that you've hired? Or ne- not necessarily that you've hired, but who are some of your idols in general? My idols, we'll put it this way, um, is, uh, well, John Bonham. Sure. Uh, Art Blakey, Buddy Rich, um, Billy Joe Jones, Steve Gadd, Jeff Lucaro. Um, a guy named Jimmy Paxson, um, Hal Bergman, um, Steve Jordan, huge influence for me. Um, Man, I'm trying. Mine too. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while here. So, okay, yeah, he's he's a motherfucker. Yeah, he is. The real deal plays all the right parts. Yep. Um, and then nicest guy, just the most humble guy, you know. Um, and then the next thing is. Um, let me see what else. Um, yes, yeah, I mean those are kind of the guys that I really dig. There's a there's a female drummer that I just love. Her intuition behind the kit is a uh, Tara Lynn Carrington, um, who no. she she plays um, she plays with a lot of jazz greats. Uh, she's a jazz head, mm-hmm. but uh, she's the original drummer. Uh, on the Arsenio Hall show back in the late 80s. Oh, okay, okay. But if you look her up and you look at what she does, and her jazz accomplishment is pretty insane. Um, Carolyn Carrington? Ter- Terry Lynn Carrington. Terry Lynn Carrington. I'm writing that down, so. Yeah. So those are some of the people, you know, I just, I like every vast of, of drummer that just you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that the people that you're listing, though, are all the people that play for the music and not for their ego. You know, so it's like, you know, you are what you eat kind of thing of, hey, man, whoever you're listening to is who you're going to end up playing like and who you're going to respect. And, you know, the people who serve the music are the people that, in my opinion, you should be listening to. Exactly. Now, um what advice would you have for, for drummers out there? Because you are an MD. So I think it's invaluable for, for drummers to hear what MDs look for in a drummer. So if someone said, Hey man, what's your, what do you look for? If you're going to go hire a drummer, the most important thing, um, like my biggest pet peeve is punctuality. You gotta be on time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You gotta be there half an hour early assess the room out, smell everything that's going on, see if you can catch something that you can predict that's going to happen later by a piece of note on the mixing board. Um, something that, you know, it's okay to snoop around and like look at what's happening in the session prior to people showing up. Right. It's, it's always important. You know, if you get there early, ask the engineer a question. Ask uh, the second engineer a question. 
because he's been there for a couple of days mm-hmm. and he can say, Hey, you know, so what's it been like, what they've been working on or even ask, I mean, be ballsy. Can you play me a little something? You know, Oh no, I don't want to do that because I'll get in trouble. Or if the guy's got a human heart, he'll be like, yeah, I want you to do good as well as I'm going to do good. So let me lend you a helping hand. Let right. me let you listen. We did yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you get an idea of the mentality to where, the sessions going does right. that make sense sure sure so be there on time assess out the situation two um leave your ego at the door just don't bring it in because right. if you bring in like i'm so and so drummer and i don't care who you are and i have you know an attitude then it's not going to work for me right. because it's like everybody who's in that room is absolutely equal sure we're all equal because you know what? That Dalai Lama said it best. There's too many humans in the world, not enough human beings. Mm-hmm. I agree. I totally so, agree with that. Yeah. So you have to, and I didn't say that. So I'm just repeating it, you know, right, with right. love. Um, so you got to leave that personality ego at the door. Like check yourself mm-hmm. when you walk in. We're all a team. We're all going to make this happen. Right. Now I know you, you know. appreciate I know you appreciate the hustle. So if I you know if if I came up to you in L.A. and I mean you know you and I know each other now, but if I came up to you, it's like, hey man, Robin, I, I I love your work and I would I would love to be able to work with you sometime. I'm a drummer, you know what what should I do now? Can can I work with you? What would you say to me? Honestly, and I would keep my word. I would say, where can I see you play? Send me some links. Let me see what you got. Right. You know, right. Um, I'd ask you a few questions. What. You know, what's your mentality when you walk in a session? What are you going to listen to? Uh, I'll play you a song. What What's the first thing you're going to listen to? And if you say, well, the beat, I'll say, no. Right. Listen to the story of the singer. What is the story telling you? Approach your rhythm, approach your musicality from what the singer's already singing. Because he has a story to tell, she has a story to tell. You have to approach it in that direction. Perfect advice. Perfect. So the other thing is, you know, you're on stage and the things that I catch is little things. And I'm going to try to explain this because it's not video. Um, you take a guy like Paul Simon who sings very docile. He doesn't scream into the mic. He lets the gain in the front of the house bring the volume up. So you have to play very soft. Um, but you have to bring the energy up because he wants energy. So you catch a guy like that every night. A little thing like when he says a word, he might point his finger up. So, because I like to talk about this. Because I like to talk about this. Every time he says I, he points his finger up. Well, that's that's an opportunity for an accent. Mm-hmm. And night after night, he does the same thing with his finger. It's a habit for him. So when he does that, you can catch subtlety a little slip of the hi-haps or a little bigger accent on the kick drum or a slider, bigger rim shot just to catch that one word. So if you're listening to the lyrics in the story and you see somebody's body movement, they will give you where to play a part without knowing some, they're subconscious to what they're doing, but it's the, it's the body. This is what they feel. So when they point that finger on I, you have a right to accent that. And they don't know, but they just know that, oh, well, that felt good. Hmm. Something felt good tonight. I have no idea what, but it felt good. Right. And the next time you do the same thing. And you catch that eye again with his finger pointing up. And now it becomes, so guys like Steve Gadd taught me that. And they were just like, listen to the story. Because there's so much that tells you in a story. There's so much you can add without adding a fill or a double paradiddle or anything. It's just a little subsequent note or a little accent that makes the whole song different. That's amazing. Never really, you know, never thought of it like that. I th- I think that subconsciously I do some of those things, but never, you never really paid attention to it in that, with well, that kind of detail. That I've told you, I think it's going to change your way of playing. I think it is too. Now I can't wait to play. <laughs> cool. Let me know where and I'll be there. <laughs> well, you coming you coming to New York? Yeah, I'm there in January and in June again. In nice. September. Well, I'll be in LA as well, so we'll have to figure that out. Um All right. 
And one other thing, so you've you've had a ton of success, and you've you know you've you've played on all these shows, and you've played with all these people, cut records, toured, all this stuff. Those are all the successful parts. But let's talk a little bit about the failures, because I think that failure and overcoming failure and recovering from that is huge in in your drive to be successful. So, can you tell us about a failure that you've experienced in your career and how you got over it? Um. Yeah. Well, you know, anytime a TV show gets canceled. It's it's kind of like most people are just devastated. Right. I just look at like, well, I got lucky to have the experience to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anything's a failure. You know, Edison had to create flying a kite to create electricity 137 times, I believe, mm-hmm. till the 138th time it actually worked. And don't quote me on the exact number, but it's around there. Well, I know yeah. with the light bulb, he made he made like 10,000 light bulbs before he found the one that worked. Right. But he flew a kite over 100 times. Right, right, right. And finally, after 100 times, it caught and he created that electricity. You know, it was, so is it really failure? Is it really failure or is it, um, is it um, a situation where Hold on one second. Let me move around real quick. All right. It's getting up. Okay. So um, for me, it's basically, um, I don't think they're failures. I think they're life lessons, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, life lessons are are what makes us stronger today. So, yeah, if I, if I had failure, yeah, I got fired a couple times and laughed my ass off in the car going. Um you know, and I was much younger and I had attitude and I definitely had some ego. And when you're a kid, you're on tour and you're, you know, with Amnesty International playing with 15, 20 of the greatest bands in the world at the time, you know, and you're there playing in front of 100,000, 150,000 people all over the world, all over the continents it's kind of weird to not have an ego when you're young because it teaches you a good life lesson. Right. If I said that I didn't have an ego or I wasn't cocky, then I'd be full of my, you know, full of myself. Right. I was, and I had to learn that that was in the way. And luckily I had the right people come to my aid um, and say, you know, you can't do that. Like really humble down. Like you're getting an opportunity here in the 1% range and you can't blow that. And people remember all the negative you do, but it's hard for them to remember the positive that you do. Right. Sure. People fixate in this world on negativity. Always. You know, it's just sad, but they do. So it's a con, you know, it's a conscious choice to stay a flow of the negativity and staying a positive. Sure. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, if you ask people how they're doing, if they're doing well, they just say, Oh, I'm, I'm doing well. But if they're doing bad, then they go into detail about every single bad thing in their lives. And it's like, well, when you're doing well, why don't you talk about all the good things? Like you said, people are, are fixated on the positive. And I think that once you get that mental shift to where you concentrate on the, the positive things, like every day I write down, something that I'm grateful for, you know, it's like, could be, could be a shitty day. It could be raining. It could, you know, something could have happened or whatever. Every day I hit my journal. I'm like, man, what's, what's something I'm thankful for just to keep, keep my mind in check of, you know, that life, life is good. Right. Life is good. Every morning you wake up, there's another chance to do better. So which comes to my motto, if better is possible, then good is not enough. Right. I like that. I'm going to write that one down right now, actually. <laughs> if better is possible, then good is not enough. So now what's on tap? Speaking of doing better and, and you know, pos- always moving forward, what's on tap for you moving forward after since you're done with the Arsenio Hall show? What's going on now? Well, I, I'm preparing for two major UN events. Um, I just basically during my hiatus the last uh, four months, I wrote two new records. Um I am working on a international UN song with the collaboration of 40 different artists. Um, and I'm up for a new TV show for next year. Nice. Uh, 
end of next year. So um, the, the thing is, this would be my fourth TV show. And I'm not going to lie, it's a lot of work. Right. When you do that, there's nothing good about it except maybe once in a blue moon, you walk into Starbucks and a musician or somebody recognizes you and they're like, oh, aren't you the, the guy on it? You know, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But besides that, um, there's nothing fancy about it except it's 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 brutal. It's brutal on the mind. It's brutal on the soul. As and, as the MD or as a player or both? As, as the MD and player. Yeah. Because not only I have to MD and, you know, it's – let me put it this way. When you MD a band, um, it's not just MDing the band. It's the executive producer yelling at you, the host not coming out when he's supposed to. You know, you got a countdown of 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. At 2, I'm counting the band in. Between 2 and 1, they stop the count. Holding count. So you're <laughs> like, you just created all this momentum that get everybody's attention. And they're tightening their ass cheeks like nobody's tomorrow to like, kick off this huge parade of energy and all of a sudden, Oh, it's now. Right. And we have a count again, you know, and they count down again and this can happen three, four times <laughs> or sometimes just an example out of 200 things that can go on, but you got to keep your eye because sometimes they go and we're coming in at 30. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready, get ready. Show starting in 30 seconds. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And somebody forgot to press the audio button feed to me, and I don't get a countdown. <laughs> now, do I start the band? Or do I take a chance? Right. I'll always take a chance and start the band. Start them. No matter what, because I can always stop if they're not ready. Sure. If they went, and so now I have to guess between a split second when it's going to come in. And I have to play so, and I have to like guide my guys not to like start wrong or so it's the stress level is something that, you know, most people say, well, I'd love to do it because I want to be on TV and all that stuff. You do it, but three, four months into it, you get a beating. You, you get a real big beating. And like I said, this, I did three TV shows, right. you know, it's a constant element. And the fourth one I'm debating, do I want to do it or not? Do I need it? You know, we always need it, but then it becomes, you know, is it my ego that needs it to say I get a fourth one or do I want to continue maybe more my level of UN, you know, love and, and what I can get back? Sure. You know, uh, the other thing is, the other thing is for me, you know, when I can get little companies, well, big companies, but like take Suzuki um, who makes motorcycles, right? They also make like children's violas, violins, and cellos and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I have the willpower, because I don't believe anybody has power, but the willpower to go to a company like that and say, look, would you like to donate tax-free $3 million of instruments for the UN to bring to kids in Syria or Iraq or Haiti when the earthquake was around? And, you know, I will talk to NATO literally and say, we need a C-130. When there's a C-130, you know, cargo plane in the vicinity of Japan, let me know. And I'll arrange, if it goes back empty, to bring a cargo full of stuff. Now, these instruments cost them $3, $3 to make, but they sell for $60, $70, $80. So right. the, the margin's huge. So they have a tax write-off from the government of Japan and they have a global tax write-off. And for them to spend three million bucks for instruments, they don't care. So they can give me the instruments and I can go back to countries in need. And instead of putting a rifle or a machine gun or a grenade in a child's, you know, brainwash mentality, I come in with the help of some of the goodwill ambassadors and put an instrument in their hand and say, look at this. And they've never seen that in their lives. And right. They can actually... hmm. That's more what I'm into. Sure. That's, you know, it's and it's tough because now you have these other opportunities that are coming to you. And like you said, you have to make a decision and it's it's like, hey, man, do I want to, you know, 
is is my ego getting in the way or or you know what's that's a tough call that's a tough call so how do you make that decision nick i i follow my heart i follow what i feel <laughs> is, is right you know not sorry one second my dog's barking. that's right um so for me um it's always about following what's right and what my heart says. And, you know, if one day my heart's wrong and my soul told me wrong, well, is it a failure or is it a lesson? Sure. It's a lesson, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. I think that's a, I think that's a good place to stop too. I like, right. I, uh, you got me, now you got me thinking, <laughs> which is good. Well, no, it's not about thinking. It's about, it's, it's just about, you know, if I magically could create a spaceship right now and you and I would go to the deep space of even our our galaxy, you know, and I would put you next to Saturn or Jupiter and you would look at Earth from that point. We're such a speck of nothing. We're just dust. Yep. So at the end of the day, does dust really matter on Earth? When, you know, I want to be on TV or I want to make millions of dollars or I want to, it doesn't, it really doesn't. It's just about doing the best you can while we're here. Right. Right. And I, you know, I'm, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking. I mean, I, I feel the same way. That's part of, you know, part of why I write down things that I'm grateful for every day. And that's why I volunteer at the, at the shelter down the street from my house and all that, because I agree that, you know, we're, we're put here to to you know enjoy our lives and to do good to others but at the end of the day you know not to sound not to sound you know too esoteric but it's like it doesn't really matter here and now exactly exactly yesterday is forgotten and tomorrow hasn't happened yet right so you know it's like you want to make all this money and you can't take it with you so Exactly. When you die, every fancy thing you have is not coming with you. Exactly. My my dad's friend always says, "I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse." You know. Thank you. I got to use that. Thank you for that. That's great. All right. Well, um, you know, anything else you want to ask? No, man. I uh, I, I appreciate all the time that that you spent so far. I could sit here and talk for hours. So I but I appreciate it, man. I know you're I know you're a busy guy, and, and it's it's a oh, little. But if this is going to help, you know, people out there and, and give a little insight, you know, I, I want to give it. It's really. And it definitely it definitely will. So, uh, like I said, I appreciate it. And I know that the, the listeners appreciate it as well. So where can they go to learn more about you? Um, well, they can go to my website, uh, Um I just endorsed Gretsch, so I'm. We're doing a really nice uh, ad campaign and, you know, PR campaign with that. I'll send you some stuff. Um, And, uh, you know, just I'm always I'm always coming around the corner where no one is expecting it, which I like. (laughs) Fun game for me. (laughs) I like it. Robin, thank you so much for for doing all this. I really do appreciate it, man, as I, as I know the listeners did as well. And for everybody out there, go to DiMaggioInternational.com to learn more about Robin. And uh, again, thanks, man, and enjoy the rest of your day. What a pleasure, and I just hope it helps one person out there that listens. I think it helped way more than that. I know it helped way more people than that. So again, thank you, man. Appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. There you have it, Mr. Robin DiMaggio, and I love the way that he approaches everything, and I love um, you know just the the good heartedness and and the hustle that he has, uh, the ethical hustle, which I like to to always stress to everybody. It's not like a sleazy hustle; it's the the ethical way of, of relationship building and all that. So I really appreciate Robin diving into that stuff. Check him out at DiMaggioInternational.com. and check me out drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. 
on Instagram at Drummers Resource and on Twitter at Drummers R Source. And also leave me some comments. I keep saying this. I want to hear from you guys. Uh, you know, go on the podcast and rate it. Shoot me an email. Leave some comments on the show notes. And yes, there is show notes for every single podcast. You can check this one out at drummersresource.com forward slash session. 82. So I want to hear your comments. I want to hear your feedback. And I got a bunch of stuff that I'm going to be working on in 2015. I'm really excited to share that stuff with you. So, but your feedback is going to be important because I'm going to be asking for some feedback on that stuff. Again, thank you to the sponsors, Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. You can check them out, bosodrumsticks.com. And you can get 15% off your order just by using the promo code podcast. And until next week, keep on drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.